0: If you would pray with me, and then we're going to look at that text together. Lord, we thank you uh, for this day. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity uh, to gather together in this place. We thank you for your word, uh, that you've preserved it and kept it for us. We thank you that you teach us through your word, that you correct us, that you show us more fully uh, what you're like and what that means for us. Uh, As we open your word, we confess that we cannot do this without you. And so we ask uh, that you would be our teacher Uh, The Holy Spirit would move in this place that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to receive your word, that you would be the one that is taking the eternal truths and applying them to exactly where we are, uh, that, you know, each person here intimately. And I pray that you would just be teaching and guiding and leading, that you'd be encouraging them this morning right where they are. And so we just pray that you would do your work in this time. Uh, We pray that everything that's done and said would glorify you. We pray all of this in Jesus precious name. Amen. Uh, My children uh, are really into watching uh, really stupid videos on the Internet. Uh, and it kind of drives me crazy a little bit, but sometimes uh, there's this thing that they do where they come and they want to show me, you've got to watch this. You've got to see this video. And usually it's something ridiculous and stupid. Uh, I see Adam smiling because my kids do it to Adam all the time whenever he's at my house. Watch this. You've got to see this. And so lately they've been showing me what they call fail videos, like people doing stupid stuff and then failing miserably at it. And so they for whatever reason think that's really funny uh some of them lately were uh watching people who don't know how to use weight equipment at the gym and then they're like almost killing themselves they're like using it upside down or backwards and then they drop a bar on them and they just think that's really funny uh and so it's like you see this uh, just when you misuse something in that way, like you don't know how to use it, it can quickly cause lots of problems. But one of the things uh, one of my boys were looking at with me the other day was um, people's biggest fails using ladders. Uh, it was just pictures of people using ladders uh, in crazy ways. Uh, one of them was a guy who had a great big, huge A-frame ladder and then another ladder on top of it. And you're looking at it like that can't be good or or the one uh, that was kind of won this contest. They're asking people to submit pictures. One was a, a guy had a great big excavator with the bucket up. You know what I'm talking about? The thing that digs. It was way up in the air and the buckets up there and he had his ladder on top of the bucket. And then, leaning against his house to get to the top of his chimney, and the ladder was like this, and he 's like 50 feet up. and so you see these things, and you 're like, "This is terrible. This is a, not a good idea." Or, or one was a guy had a trash can with wheels on it, and then on the other side he had a cart. Uh, with four wheels on each corner, and his ladder was in between the trash can and the cart as he's working on a sign like 30 feet up or something. And so you see those things and you go, that's not good. And so it's when you start to misuse something, like, like a ladder is helpful... Uh, But there's safety regulations. There's a proper way to use it. But when you misuse it quickly, you can get injured or in those cases, maybe die with some of the things those people were doing. It's pretty scary to see how if you use it or you misuse the equipment, uh, it can cause all sorts of problems. And so that's a little bit what we started to talk about last week is we're in this section in Ephesians on marriage. Uh, We talked about uh, last week kind of big idea things on how our culture misuses or missees Marriage and the way that God's given it to us. And so when we misuse it or we don't use it in the way that God has designed it, quickly there can become all sorts of problems. And so last week, what we did, just as we started in this section in Ephesians 5, we have one of the longest passages in the Bible uh, that is addressing marriage and what it looks like and the way God has designed it. And last week, we just kind of tried to clear the table a little bit, God's idea, big picture of what marriage is. And so if you weren't here with us last week, we just said it's God's idea. God is the one who who created and ordained marriage. You see Paul in Ephesians five, as he's writing this letter to the early church, he quotes from Genesis chapter two and verse 31. And so we went back and looked at big picture what God was doing, that God is the one that designed marriage. He designed it to be one man and one woman in a monogamous committed relationship for life. And then we said that that image that he gives us and what he says here in verses 31 and then in 32 is that God has designed marriage that way the faithfulness of one man and one woman for life that faithfulness together that fidelity in that relationship is to point us to Christ's love for us in the way that God loves us in Jesus that it magnifies it's supposed to show that and so that's kind of where we were last week big picture today I want us to kind of flesh that out a little bit more and think about the purpose that God's given us in marriage that's the big idea but then the purpose that God's What he's doing in that, how we could say we're seeking to glorify God. If marriage is designed to point us to Christ's love for us, the church, his people, then we should look at how Christ loves us. And that helps us to understand what it looks like to have a healthy marriage in the way that God has designed it to be. So real simple uh, this morning, what we're going to do is think about the ways in which Christ loves us. And, and Paul has a couple things to say about this in verses 25 to 27. And that's kind of where we're going to zero in today. And so we're going to think about the way Jesus loves us and the, how that informs us on how we should love our spouse within our marriage. And then secondly, we're going to think about how do we practically do this? So the first half is kind of the big picture of what God's doing and what he's saying. It is it is for and the purpose. But then the second part, practically, how do we do this? And I would tell you just as as we sit here, if you're not married or you're not sure, uh, maybe that's in your future or wherever you may be in that. A lot of the things he's going to say about the way that we love our spouse is the way that we love one another within the family of faith as well. A lot of it is is kind of goes for both. So don't tune out if you go, well, I'm not married and that doesn't apply to me. There's a lot of what he says that's very applicable to right where we are and seeking to love one another in the way that Jesus has loved us. So let's look at this first part of how Christ loves us. And so if you look at verse twenty five to twenty seven with me, Paul writes, "Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And so last week we talked about the first part of that, this idea of Christ loving the church in verse 25 by giving himself up for her. And we go right to the heart of the gospel, the good news of what we believe about what God has done for us in Jesus. And at the very heart of that is Jesus' sacrificial love for us. That we as sinners have, have uh, turned our back on God, that we've ignored him in the world that he's created. And we've, we've cre- we have created this separation from God in our sin because of our rebellion. And God has condescended to us. He's given us his laws and his ways to respond to him and to be in a relationship with him. But in doing so, He shows us that we haven't done it. And so what we see throughout scripture is this idea that we are separated from God because we are sinners. And when we try to keep his laws, we do it halfway at best. We fail repeatedly. We see how we haven't done it. And it just magnifies how perfect God is and how sinful we are. And we desperately need God to do what we cannot do for ourselves. And so what we see is that Jesus comes and does what we could never do for us. He lives this life perfectly in every way. He loves God and loves people and everything and in all ways perfectly. And in doing so, as he is, he lowers himself to become into creation, to live this life perfectly. He takes our sin on himself and then he gives us his righteousness by grace through faith. And so when he goes to the cross, he goes to the cross not for his sins because he is perfect in every way, but he goes for yours and mine. He pays for our sins and then he gives us his righteousness. And he does that by giving himself up for his bride, the church. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 25. And so if we would put that in great big theological terms, the way the Bible talks about it, that's what we call justification. We are made right in God's eyes through what Jesus does for us. The only way we can be justified is not by our good works, but what through Christ has done for us. The perfection of his perfect sinless life and his atoning death on our behalf. That's the very basics of the gospel that we proclaim. And so we say that that's the first part that he's alluding to there when he says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so when you put your faith in Christ by grace through faith, you immediately get the benefits of that. You're restored with that relationship with God. You are made right in his eyes. You are perfectly right in every way because of what jesus has done not because of what you do and that is the good news and so often when we talk about jesus and his love for us that's what we say he died for my sins that is absolutely true and that's right Uh, we oftentimes though when we talk about the way in which jesus loves us oftentimes we stop there he's died for my sins he's taken them away that's it And so you say, what has Jesus done for you? Well, he's died for my sins. That's what we say, especially in the church in America today. We say that frequently. But when we really start to think about the ways in which Jesus loves us, which Paul's saying is the way that we're to love our spouse, he actually does a lot more than that. He doesn't just die for our sins. He doesn't just give us his righteousness. But then he gives us the person and work of the Holy Spirit to come and indwell us and begin to remake us into his image. And so if you look closely at verse twenty five and twenty six and twenty seven, if you're a note taker or you like to write in your Bible, you could put right next to verse twenty five justification. Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us. He dies for us. He takes our sin, gives us his righteousness. We are justified in his sight. Verse twenty six, he says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. You could put sanctification next to that. Justification in verse 25, verse 26 would be sanctification, which is growing into what we now are in Christ and making that a reality in the way we live our life. We're already saved. We're already made spotless and perfect in Jesus' sight because of what He's done, but in the sinfulness of our flesh and our body, we're still struggling to believe that in every area of our life. And so we struggle with making that a reality. But that process in the Bible is called sanctification. So we talk about when we talk about discipleship. Discipleship is helping one another to grow in that in our sanctification. And so that's verse 26, verse 27. He says he's doing that so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's called Glorification. God is going to finish that work in all those that are his that have put their faith in him. And even though in this life we struggle to make that a complete reality and we still have setbacks and we sin and we go through that and we're wrestling with it. He's going to finish the work that he started. Paul says that in Romans eight. He says, those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified he's going to finish that work. He who began a good work and he was going to bring it to completion and he's going to do it all the way to the end. And so when we start to think about the way in which Jesus loves us, it's not just as wonderful. It is that he died for our sins and he gives us his righteousness, but now he's going to make that a reality in every part of your life. And so when you die, Or when Jesus returns and you stand before him, you're going to glorify him completely. Glorification, you're going to reflect back what he's like and it's going to come into every part of your life. That's really, really good news. All your sinfulness will be gone and you will fully reflect the one who made you in the way that you were created to be in fullness. That's what we call glorification. But we right now as people are in the in-between, We're in the process of our sanctification. If you have become a believer and you've put your faith in Jesus and even though you have Christ's righteousness, you're struggling to believe that in every area of your life. That's what we say. Discipleship is bringing every area of our life under the obedience of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not that you're not saved. It's not that you're not a Christian. It's not that Jesus in Jesus. God sees you perfectly already, but it's you're working that out. And so in that process, we're struggling to work that out and we're continuing to do that. But here's what I want you to see as it pertains to marriage. So he tells you that this is the way Jesus loves us. He justifies us. He's sanctifying us. He's going to glorify us in the end in the same way husbands should love their wives. What he's saying is that marriage in its purpose is to help in your sanctification, It's to help you to grow into the future glory selves that you will be in Jesus. And God has designed it that way. And so when we said last week that that marriage is there to point us to God's love for us in Jesus. And the way that he does that practically is that we're to help one another to grow in our sanctification. And So Paul's saying love each other in that way. To help each other to grow up in that. And so the purpose of our marriage is to help to sanctify one another, to grow into the future glory selves that God's created you to be in Jesus. That's very different than the way the world looks at marriage. It's very different of the purposes and the things that we put on marriage that cause lots of all sorts of problems when we play them out probably the biggest when you talk to a young couple that's just gotten engaged and they're really excited about being married. A lot of times it's centered around an idea of kind of romantic love. I found this person and I'm so excited and they make me happy and I have all these feelings, intense feelings, and they're real. I'm not making fun of that. I'm not downplaying those. There's these intense feelings that go with it and you're in love. And what happens is we we take it and we pretend like or or we mistakenly say that love is this feeling. It's this feeling in this moment and I feel this and this is what marriage is about. And anyone that's been in a relationship for longer than a year or maybe two years knows that those feelings wane, they ebb and flow. Sometimes they're stronger and sometimes they're weaker. And if you make that the purpose of your marriage, it will struggle Usually wrapped up in that is is physical attraction, intense feelings. There's lust thrown into that. There's all those things together and it's really intense. And then over time, it starts to wane. And if that's what you've built your marriage on, that purpose of maintaining that feeling, it will not last. And it will be a struggle because that's not the way God designed it. That's not to be the center thing of your marriage. And so what happens is that starts to wane or we struggle through that. And so then we pivot to something else. Maybe it's the life we can build together or the stuff that we can have or the retirement we're going to enjoy, or all these things that we seek to make the purpose of our marriage. But all those things are fleeting and none of them can stand up to that. And so we do it in all these different ways. A lot of times what happens is those intense feelings are there and they start to wane and then it suddenly pivots to children. We'll have kids and build a family, which is wonderful. It is God's good, gracious gift. Children are designed to be part of your marriage, right? In that way, if God's gifted you in that way, that's the way they're supposed to come out of that is, is in a marriage in the way God's designed it. But if you make children the very center of your marriage, guess what happens? If you make it all about your children, they grow up and they move out. <laughs> they're not, hopefully, <laughs> they're not there forever. Or if you make them the center, guess what will happen? You'll begin to crush them with the weight and the expectation of making them the center of all of it, because they're not supposed to be the center of it. They're a good gift and a good part of it, but they're not made to be the center of all of it. In fact, if you do that within your marriage, if it becomes all about your kids, what will happen is your kids who spoiler if you've got really little kids, they're sinful. They're broken people just like you are. If you make them the center of your marriage in your life, it feeds into their selfish self-centeredness and they just grow up thinking they're the center of the world, which is all of our problem in our sinfulness. And not only that, if, if you do that, if you make them the center of your marriage in every way, you know what happens as you grow in that relationship, as they see that you're showing them a really unhealthy marriage. There needs to be a priority of your love for your spouse that your children see. Joanna and I were reading a book a couple years ago that your kids need to see you kiss. They need to see you be affectionate. They need to see you tell each other that you love one another. And the boys have just gotten to the age where they're like, that's gross. Please stop. Right? They don't like that. But they need to see a healthy marriage and what it looks like and that priority of your spouse in the center of it. But even that, if it's the person, but if it's what God has designed it to be, which is our sanctification of of helping one another grow in the fullness of what God has designed us to be, that can sustain it. And here's why, because God is at the very center now of your marriage. And what happens in our sanctification is we're growing in grace and humility. We're seeing that we're more sinful than we ever dared imagine, but we're more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope in Jesus. And as those things are happening, you're growing closer to God together. And as you're growing closer to God with him as the center, you're getting closer together and that relationship is getting stronger and that's the way it was designed to be. It wasn't designed to be about all these other things, although the other things are good gifts that come along with it. But it was to, for your sanctification to grow up into that. So how does that work? That's what Paul says here. He gives you those things and then he says in the same way, husbands, you should love your wives. So how does that work? What does it look like, our sanctification growing together in this? And so look at what he says. Verse 25, he says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Part of that loving your spouse is dying to yourself and caring for their needs and putting the other first. But then look at what he says in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. And so when we start to think about what does it look like in our life, I want you to think about everything Paul's been saying that we're called to do as the church. And it certainly is true within our marriage. It has to have a balance of grace and truth. He's been telling us to speak the truth to one another. To tell each other, to to walk with that together. And so there has to be a balance of that. If we're washing with the water of the word, speaking the truth. Pointing one another to what is true about us in God and what that looks like. It means speaking the truth with great grace. And so within your marriage, that should be a part of it in the way God has designed it to be. That we're lovingly speaking the truth to each other. And it's really easy to get this wrong. I think you could ask any married couple in the room. And they'd tell you about all the ways they've gotten this wrong. In fact, I was thinking about this. I'm going to tell you a couple things about my marriage as I go through this. If I take everything I've learned in almost 17 years and I boil it down to like 10 minutes of my sermon, it sounds like I kind of know what I'm doing. Basically, that's like all the wisdom I've got, and it's like this little bit. And so I'm sharing this is what God's design is, but I'm fumbling my way through it every day. And so when we speak the truth, to each other it has to be grace and truth in balance it's easy to slip into going i'm going to speak the truth and then becoming a know-it-all that has to have the last word on everything that is always right that's not right that's not true that's not it i'm going to have to... do you know someone like that never been around somebody like that that can't let anything go and they always have to have the last word and they have to say that yeah it's terrible <laughs> And the last thing you want is your spouse continually telling you everything that's wrong all the time, totally and everything. And so we want to speak the truth, but we want it to be filled with grace. It's important in our marriage that we feel supported and encouraged that you listen to your spouse. I want Joanna to be able to come home and tell me what happened in her day. This is what happened and this is what's frustrating and this is where I was struggling and this is what was going on and this is what was really great. And I want to be a good listener. I don't know about you guys, it's hard sometimes just to be quiet and to listen. We want to quickly say, well, this is what you should do. Oh, that's what happened. Well, here's how you fix it. And sometimes it's good to speak truth and to be there, but sometimes it's good just to be quiet and to listen and so we can err when we just constantly have to say something. But the other side of that is your spouse can be sharing with you and telling you things and saying things that are not in alignment with what God's word says. And if you just nod in agreement, and go, yeah, yeah, I understand. And you never, ever speak the truth. We've erred on the other side. It's speaking the truth with great grace to one another. And so think of all the things that Paul's been saying in Ephesians. Be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another. So we want to be kind in the way we do that and the way we say it. We want it to be with great grace. But he's also telling us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's also telling us to speak the truth and love to one another. And all those things he's saying about the church, the church in general, also apply to us and our marriages, especially if the purpose, as he says here, is our sanctification, growing up into a fullness of what God wants us to be. And so we speak the truth in love to one another. When we look at Jesus, we see the perfect balance of this in every way. There's a great example in John chapter 11. Lazarus has just died. Lazarus is a dear friend of Jesus. And he has a sister, Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha are very different. We get these little glimpses in the gospel. Martha seems to be a doer that's always busy and on the go, more outgoing, quick to speak, say what she's thinking. Mary seems to be much more kind of contemplative in the background a little more. You see, they're very different personalities. And so Jesus shows up and Lazarus has been dead for three days and Martha runs out to meet him. And she meets him there and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he looks at her and he tells her, uh, he says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha, taking what she understands and what she knows, she goes and runs with that and she says, yes, yes, Lord, I understand. I know that in the, he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And so what she's saying is a perfectly normal Jewish understanding of the resurrection, that it will be in the last day when Jesus returns. And that's what she's saying. Yes, I know he'll rise. I get it. And Jesus looks right at her and he graciously, lovingly corrects her. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And he corrects her and he does it in a very gracious and loving way. And he tells her the truth of who he is. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Right after that, they tell Mary he's there and she comes out and she says the exact same thing. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus looks at her and he sees her weeping and he sees the people around. He doesn't say anything except he asks where Lazarus is and then it says Jesus wept. She said the exact same thing. One, he speaks the truth and corrects her and the other, he just sits and weeps with her. And in our marriages, sometimes you just sit and listen. And you weep together. And you don't offer a criticism or a correction. You're just there. And there's times when we stop and we speak the truth. Or from my experience, sometimes it's you sit and you listen and you weep together. And then maybe a day or two or three days later, you come back and then you address some of the things that need to be addressed. But it's truth and grace in this balance that we see. And if we don't ever speak the truth to one another, we're not going to grow up into the fullness that Jesus would have for us. And God's designed us to do that together in our marriages. And so it's the speaking the truth in love to one another. But when we do that, when we begin to speak the truth in love to one another, it always has to be centered on the person and work of Jesus. So we say here of gospel fluency, gospel centeredness, that as we speak the truth to each other, we're pointing one another back to what we've been designed to be in Jesus, what our identity is now in Christ. And if we don't do that, we're not professing the fullness of what God's told us. And I want you to think about how that works. It can't be just correcting it's not just telling your spouse what they're doing wrong. It's not what I'm saying. Look closely at what he says. Verse 25 is Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her justification. He saved you by what he's done for you completely and totally. It's all Christ and nothing else. And then sanctification comes. You're already this in Jesus and now you begin to live it out. Notice the order. We don't get that backwards. If we get it backwards, we're no longer preaching the gospel. And that's what our hearts want to do. You do this and you do this and you do this and then God will be good with you. That's not the gospel. Jesus has already done it completely and totally. And now you get to live out of your new identity in Christ in every area of your life. And so I want you to think about how easy it is to mess that up if we get the order wrong. You can speak the truth to your spouse really graciously. I mean, very kindly and sweetly and not just snapping, but addressing things that are true. Speaking the truth. If your spouse is complaining a lot. right? They're just complaining about what's happening or what's going on. It's a normal part. We do that with the people closest to us. We kind of put those things out there. You could easily say to them and be completely true in doing so. Being filled with the spirit in Ephesians that we just looked at means giving thanks always and for everything. Right. So they're complaining and you say, well, you give thanks always and everything and stop complaining. And you could say it way more gracious than I just said it. Right. Don't say it like that. Sweetie, have you considered? Right. Or however you want to say it. Right. And it could be really, really gracious and loving. But what you're saying is don't do this and do this. Or, or maybe it's anxious. I'm really worried about this. And you go, hey, Jesus says be anxious for nothing. That's true. He does say that. It's exactly what the Bible says be anxious for nothing. Look at the birds in the air and the flowers in the fields. Don't I take care of them? I'll take care of you. But you could say, Jesus says be anxious for nothing. It's okay. Don't worry. Or someone's really ugly to your spouse at work and they come home and they go, man, that guy or that. And you go, don't repay evil for evil. Right? These are all this. I'm quoting the Bible to you. It's what God says. But if we do it just in that way and we continue to say that there's still going to be problems. We're still going to struggle. And I want you to consider why. Your spouse is your closest confidant. The person who sees you most unfiltered, sees all your mess. They see all the things you blow it. Which you do. Right. You can put on a good front for people that see you every now and then, but people who live with you and see you in every moment, see it all. And if what we do is then constantly say you're doing that wrong, don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. Do this. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't complain. Don't be anxious. You just keep going over and over telling each other those things. And you keep saying that the problem is constantly telling them just to try harder is not how your heart is changed. Your heart is changed by the grace of God. And it's recognizing the grace of God in your life and seeing who you now are in Jesus and what that means for you. And so it's not just saying this is the truth. Now do it. It has to be centered on the person and work of Jesus or it doesn't work. How often we believe our justification. We're saved by what Jesus does, but now our sanctification walking that out is our own power. Yeah, Jesus saved me, but now I've got to get to work to do these things. You are saved by Grace. You are sanctified by grace. And so when we're speaking the truth to one another in our marriages, that God would be magnified in that, that we would glorify Him in all those ways, it's going to be centered on the person and work of Jesus. We're going to be reminding one another that Jesus has finished the work. He has dealt with our sins past, present, and future. It's all what He's done. And we now get to live out of our new identity in Christ and remind one another of that. So I'm going to give you an example, and I cleared it with Joanna before I asked. I'm going to use myself as the example that Joanna said to me. So we're walking one night, as we do sometimes, and I had played basketball that morning. And she said, "How was basketball today?" I was like, "Oh, it was okay. I shot all right. I did okay. We won. Whatever." And I was like, but I was really frustrated. I got really angry. And she said, why? Why did you get really angry? And I said, well, we divided up teams five on five like we always play. And the other team put the worst player on the court on me. It made me mad. I was angry. I was like, that guy's terrible. I'm going to score every time. I'm very competitive. When I play basketball, I take it real seriously. It's like, how dare you put him on me? And I did. I scored a lot, and we won easily. But it still made me mad. And I was. T- she was like, "Well, what? You won. Who cares? You're, why were you mad?" And I said, "Because I'm better than that. They should know that, right? Which is my pride, right? Competitiveness. How dare you think that? What? Right? Whatever." And Joanna just kind of listened, and we walked a little while longer. Now she would have been perfectly justified to speak the truth to me and say, it's a pickup basketball game. Who cares? Right. She would have been perfectly right to say, you're a bunch of old guys. You're all not good. It doesn't really matter. Right. That would have been the truth. She could have spoken the truth to me in that way. But what she said after we walked a couple of minutes and she got real quiet and she kind of said, do you think you're maybe not trusting that God's gracious? I said, why do you say that? And she went, well, if God loves us completely and totally and fully, then it doesn't really matter what anybody thinks about us as far as how good we are at basketball. I'm oh, you're right. <laughs> right? And it wounds, wounds your pride just a little bit. But then what happens is what she said to me is true. And it points to me to my identity in Jesus. I go, yeah, you're right. And she spoke the truth to me, but she said it in a way that was encouraging and loving and pointing me to my identity and what Jesus has done in Christ. And it changed the way I thought, Went, you're right. And I didn't worry about it anymore. And so when we speak the truth to one another, it has to be through grace, pointing one another to what Jesus has done. See, she addressed my heart issue, not just the surface. She could have just said, stop getting upset over basketball. That's stupid. Which is true, but it doesn't address the heart issue of where I'm not trusting Jesus in my life. But when we speak the truth to one another that points us more fully to who we are in Christ, it gets to the heart issue. And then I see Jesus for who he is and what he's done. And that grace of understanding that God loves me completely and totally, and it doesn't matter how good I am at sports. That changes my heart. And next time I go, I think, oh, yeah, that's ridiculous. Why am I getting upset over that? His grace begins to melt us in this. And so marriage is the most fertile ground for this. And the reason is because your spouse sees you at your weakest, your spouse sees you when you lose your temper and when you get frustrated and when you're angry and whatever it is. They see all of it, but reminding you of who you are in Christ, that you have the ability in that relationship to encourage them more than anyone else. And as we begin to do that together and grow up into that, we're growing more fully in who we are in Christ. And what happens is it strengthens our Marriage. We're growing in our uh, understanding of what it means that God loves us in the way he loves us. And that produces a humility. I am sinful. But it also produces this thankfulness of what Christ has done for us. And it brings us closer together. God's designed our marriages to do just that. And it can sustain all the changes and all the things you go through because Jesus is right at the center of it which is what it says here that our marriages are created to be. I'm telling you it is a mystery, but it refers to Christ and his love for the church. How God loves us. And so we have this wonderful opportunity. And so we need to be growing in this together. As we do that, and and I just want to make a a, a broader application here. If you're not married, it's the same thing of of why we say deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer. As we talk about discipleship, we get into community groups and then we get into smaller groups than that two or three guys together because we can begin to speak the truth and remind each other of that. But your marriage has a place of primacy in that that's going to be the most fertile ground for that to happen. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you love us. That you love us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sinfulness. I thank you for people in our lives that can point us to that truth. Give us the boldness to say that to one another, but we pray that we would do it with great humility and grace. I pray for each uh, married couple here today. I pray for each of those marriages that you would be the very center of it, that you'd give us uh, opportunities to build our spouse up in you. That we would continue to point one another to who we are in Jesus. That we would be a great encouragement. Help us to be better listeners. Help us to be spending time in the word that we recognize the truth and that we can encourage one another in it. We pray that we would encourage one another in our identity in Jesus and all things and that you would be glorified in that. We thank you. We pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.